What's going on, everybody? This is Ryan Henry, and welcome to 180, where we get to share amazing stories of Christian transformation from around the world. These stories will literally blow your mind. Follow us on your favorite podcast player, or you can visit us at 180podcast.com. That's O-N-E-80podcast.com. It was like a lifeline. I was like a, I was like a kid holding on to a tow rope behind a speedboat going through shark-infested waters. That's the best way I could describe what my what my faith was like as a kid. John Thompson was a teen in need of rescue. A young kid in hiding from a sociopathic father, John was so ticked off at God that he ran into the woods and he yelled. But it was years later when music saved his soul. During a chance long night with a particular Christian album, John felt God tell him, I'm here, I got you. Ever since, he's been helping share faith-fueled music in a number of different ways. Today, he serves as a visiting professor of music industry studies at Lipscomb University in Nashville. Welcome to John's 180. John, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us here on 180. Sure thing. I'm excited to hear your story. But before we get too far into your story, we know that you're basically Mr. Christian Music himself. So we have to have a question, a random question that has to deal with Christian music. So if our listeners have never, ever listened to Christian music, which album would you have them start with? Man, okay, so here's the thing. That's not that hard of a question for me because I've been doing this since I was a kid. But the thing I would want to know first is what in the heck do they mean by Christian music? I've never in my whole career liked the idea that Christian music is this separate thing that belongs in a separate building down the hall from real music. When I started True Tunes, the whole idea was that great music and true music, you know, essentially the good, the true, and the beautiful. Like, like we find it everywhere. We need to learn how to be discerners of the good, the true, and the beautiful. So when people would come up to me and say, okay, what's your favorite Christian album? I might like to just throw them a curveball and say something like, uh, you know, a Springsteen album or a, or a Dylan album or, or something, because I, I honestly can find the Christian truth, uh, Bono once said that the greatest songs are written by people either running toward or away from God. You can calculate for X from either extreme, right? You know, and so I would say something like Bob Dylan's Slow Train Coming, you know, the, one of the first records he made, or I think it's the first record he made during his gospel period, but it still retains a lot of mainstream rock credibility. Uh, Bruce Coburn is an artist that was always operating in the mainstream and bringing his faith into his music. Yeah. He did an album around 1980 called Dancing in the Dragon's Jaws that, mm. that is just fantastic. The, the, one of the highest purposes of music, it brings us together and it fosters conversation and it helps us build relationship. That's great. I love that answer. A little different than what you might typically expect, but it's great. I don't think that there really is such thing as secular music. I mean, if if the gospel is true, then there's nothing good or true or beautiful that God doesn't look at and say, well, that's mine too. That's my fingerprint. And so whether it's a beautiful painting, whether it's a great mm. film, whether it's a great song, 
The truth is the truth, whether it was couched in Christian vernacular or written with a specific ministry intent, or it's just a person who says, you know what, that sunset is beautiful. It feel, It's drawing me towards something eternal that's like still of value. And so I think that, yeah. you know, people who have who have said specifically, I am not a Christian, I don't believe in God, they still, sometimes they tell the truth, you know, and we can Mm -hmm. resonate with that truth. And we have to think about what it's being used for, because it can be used for secular purposes, it can be used for evil purposes, hateful purposes, or really good life and love-affirming, God-honoring purposes. But music itself, I don't think, is secular music. Wow, thank you for sharing those thoughts. So John, do you have some resources for our listeners? If they specifically are looking for, you know, music that, yeah, music that like transcends or just connects them to God in a a unique way, where would you tell them to start? Well, I would invite anybody that's interested in that to just join us on this True Tunes journey. It's something I started when I was a kid and then I restarted it a few years ago. We have a podcast, the True Tunes podcast that's out there. We have uh, truetunes.com. We have a Facebook channel at True Tunes Now. And I curate a Spotify mix every week. I put 40 songs uh, out every week. And it's everything from roots gospel, you know, Sister Rosetta Tharp songs to contemporary gospel to occasionally a, a contemporary Christian song to indie alternative songs. And it's all over the map, but there will be a thread, sometimes a thematic thread, sometimes uh, a stylistic thread. But over the span of 40 songs, if you listen to that mix every week, you're going to hear new artists you've never heard. You're going to hear stuff yeah. you maybe have heard but haven't thought of in a while. And you're going to hear some mm. stuff and go, boy, I never thought of it from that perspective. So cool. if you follow my mix on Spotify and you listen to the podcast, you're going to hear conversations and you're going to go, well, I didn't really think this of this as a, like you would call it maybe Christian. The yeah. theme of the show has been listen to better music and listen to music better. So we're trying to to both give an example of and model this process of active listening. Awesome. Well, I really want to get into your story. So if we can go back to the beginning, and if you just would talk to us about where, where you grew up. Yeah, I grew up in South Central in Central Illinois, kind of in the country there. My mom became a Christian at the tail end of what is called the Jesus Movement, you know, mm-hmm. back when... Lots of young people in in the 60s and early 70s were caught up in this sort of revival that was taking place. So millions of young people were becoming uh, Christians. They were embracing this long-haired hippie freak Jesus. And they were, Mm. there was, you know, it was on the cover of Time, Newsweek. It was, you know, Mm. hundreds of thousands of kids getting baptized in the ocean out in Southern California. Mm. There was pockets of it in the Midwest, pockets of it out in New England. And it actually started and took root in Central America, South America, England, Africa. It was, it was a global thing. And Mm. so, and music was a big part of that as well. It was really kind of an extension of the counterculture when a lot of hippie kids had kind of run down the the free love and drug Woodstock era thing. Yeah. And a good chunk of them encountered this version of Jesus that I would think is more historically correct, you know, than the version that maybe the mainstream church had been projecting. Mm-hmm. And they resonated with it. My mom was uh, affected by that. So she she was influenced. She she was she brought into this women's Bible study. Now, for a little bit more context, my biological father was a very violent, sociopathic, alcoholic, criminal kind of person. He was a very bad person, and he abused her, and he terrified my brothers and I. And so, when she came to faith, 
as a very young kid, I latched on to that faith as well. So I, I really don't remember a time in my life where God didn't feel very present to me. Mm-hmm. But my relationship to that was out of necessity. It was like a lifeline. I was like a, I was like a kid holding on to a tow rope behind a speedboat going through shark infested waters. That's the best way I could describe what my, what my faith was like as a kid, mm-hmm. but it did feel real to me. It felt often like, um, God or the gospel was just the next best thing to drowning or being eaten by sharks, which is kind of what the alternative seemed to be. Um, when I was 10, Right before we had to leave this situation because it had become life-threatening, my grandma knew that something was about to happen. I had become very passionate about music. We lived out in the country outside of Peoria, Illinois, and I would just have these radio headphones. They were big, bulky headphones that had radio built right into it, and I could dial in whatever. And I just... I listened to everything. I mean, I listened to gospel music. I listened to rock and roll. I listened to college radios. I really developed a very wide range of tastes. I mean, it was, it was crazy. Now, when I look back, my, my mom started to get a little bit worried about how passionate I was about certain songs that seemed to be not consistent with this Christian faith, you know, Mm -hmm. and she talked to her mom about it. My grandma, my grandma went to a Christian bookstore through my aunt had heard about Jesus music, but my mom was listening to Jesus music and it was nice, but it was really kind of for her generation. It was real gentle, folky, you know, feminine stuff. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, mom loved it, but I needed something a little bit grittier, a little bit darker. And grandma found these tapes and one of them was this band to Garmo and Key, uh, an album called Straight On. And she made the mistake of telling me it was Christian rock, which meant I was like, oh, thanks, Grandma. You know, like I figured it would sound kind of like the stuff that mom listened to. And so I, I didn't really listen to it that much at first. But shortly after she gave it to me, we ended up going into hiding and spending a, a good amount of time on the run from my father. And then they relocated us to a, the Riverwoods Christian Center camp in St. Charles. And we okay. spent a lot of time hiding there, basically. My mom would cook meals in the kitchen and help with accounting and my brothers and I were little. I was barely 10. And that tape was one of the only things I had. I literally, everything I owned fit in one orange duffel bag and wow. a tape recorder. And that cassette was one of the things. And so finally, out of boredom, I listened to that. I remember I was at the Wayside Cross rescue mission there in Aurora, popped that tape in and listened. And it really got through to me. It was actually very intense musically. It was very intense lyrically. Um, it had a darker sound to it. And it really spoke to me. And it, and it was it was important. It, it was powerful. And it, there was something about the, I, I said this in my book that I felt like I was kind of listening under the door <laughs> to a conversation that these people were having about mm-hmm. a very real relationship kind of connection to God, mm-hmm. not this just a lifeline kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I didn't quite yet, you know, and also when you're 10 years old, you're kind of figuring out the difference between just being connected to your parents and actually being your own autonomous individual person. Yeah. But I knew that something had to shift like this, this living in on adrenaline, uh, surviving and being the oldest brother of, of at that point, four kids that I had this sense of having to take care of my little brothers. And that was causing a lot of stress and anxiety and all that kind of stuff. So my, I felt my, my faith kind of shifting starting when I was about 10 and that music became a big part of that. We ended up settling in the Chicago suburbs. We were able to come out of hiding and start going to the Episcopal church that my grandparents had had been going to. And that was always you know, part of the background of our faith. We had gone to kind of all different sorts of churches um, wherever we lived. 
Mm-hmm. Which is another thing I'm now grateful for is that we went to this tiny little church in the country that the town was too small to really have more than one church. So everybody went to just church, you know, and then we, we went to charismatic churches and we went to um, more stoic kind of quiet churches. And this, uh, this Episcopal church really became home. Uh, I was very fortunate to have a very active youth group with youth pastors who not only were serious about teaching the Bible and serious about character formation, but they also took a very mentorly role in my life as a young kid who needed that. Like I, you know, I needed some serious help. I was messed up. Like I, I was dealing with some significant PTSD, but, but I was hiding it very, very well. And I was forming kind of characters, uh, almost on the verge of what some people would call dissociative disorder. Like I, I would project a version of myself that was fine and everything was perfect and I was the perfect kid and all that kind of stuff. But inside I was, I was crumbling and I was developing a lot of serious health problems too. We went to, our youth group went to a charismatic Episcopal church in Bath, Ohio. And um, again, I'm the good church kid. I memorized all the books of the Bible. I was, you know, always at youth group. Every time the church was open, I would be there doing stuff. Quick to serve, you know, very connected to this, but still kind of like on the rope, <laughs> you know, still mm-hmm. not quite figuring out how the, the this, what my adult version of faith that wasn't just a survival mechanism was going to be. Hmm. And at this conference, a band would play <laughs> and that always got my attention. And during this concert, this Christian rock kind of rock band Jesus thing, you know, they did the thing, you know, that we've all seen a million times, you know, where during the show, first you rock out and the kids are all going crazy. Then you do a sermon and the sermon is kind of like, you got to get serious about your faith. Are you a Christian? Are you not? Are you going this way or that way? And, mm-hmm. you know, um, and then if you want to, if you want to get saved, you know, you want, you know, it's an altar call. And, and so come forward and, and they made room down by the stage for, and I'm thinking back, like, what, what are the odds of a, an Episcopal, a charismatic Episcopal church having a rock band do an altar call? Like, it's, it's like <laughs> a, the weirdest group of planets aligning. But you're like, yeah. <laughs> it was just really simple, even simplistic, like, if you're not saved and you need to get saved, come forward and everything. Right. But I felt this compulsion, like I needed to go forward for this yeah. altar call. Yeah. And I wasn't going to do it because he wasn't, it wasn't for me. Like this invitation was to get saved. And I was already baptized in the Catholic church as a baby. I had been rebaptized at eight years old at this little church in the country. I had gone through confirmation class at the Episcopal church. I was, you know, I was already a Christian. Why, why do I feel this compulsion to go forward at wow. this altar call? Wow. But then I felt myself just get up and mm. go. Mm. <laughs> and the whole youth group is going, John is going. <laughs> like, why in the world is he going down? He's he needs it less than anybody. Like now, right. I'm I'm feeling like I'm showing off. I'm doing this for attention. My brain is just spinning about why I should not be walking. I should just pretend like I got to go to the bathroom and just take a left turn and go down the hall. <laughs> but I go forward, and they've got a guitar case open on the stage, and you're supposed to put anything in that case that you're trying to get rid of. So you're repenting, like you know, pornography drugs, whatever, cigarettes you want to give up, right? I can't believe there's like a Playboy in this thing. Like some kid has brought an actual Playboy into the concert, like 
Like, where did you even put that? <laughs> like, yes, that's a commitment, right? right? Just, but yes. there's, a, there's a little bag of pills or whatever in there. I got nothing to put in there, right? When it's my, when I yeah. make my way to the thing, I'm, and, and, but then I felt this sense, this not audible, but this just very clear sense that I needed to just let go of this anger and fear and pain. Because mm. if I didn't, if I didn't just let this go, it was going to kill me. Like I, the, wow. I felt like I was wow. on a thread that was very, very thin. And so I just kind of had this picture in my mind of almost like vomiting pain and anger and bitterness and even hatred for my biological father and fear into that guitar case, <laughs> like uh, on top of yeah. all of that other stuff, wow. my sins, my brokenness was hidden. It wasn't anything anybody could see. But it still had to come out and it had to pour into that guitar case with all that other stuff. Mm. And when I when I had that experience and I walked away, this woman, one of the youth leaders from some other church who was one of the counselors, you know, had probably, you know, just they were there to kind of talk to any of the kids that went forward. Uh, she asked if I needed prayer and I said, yes, but she's, when she asked me what I needed prayer for, I said, I don't know how to describe it. (laughs) I I, I cannot, I cannot talk about what's going on because then it involves me having to eventually explain what's gone on when I was a kid. And I did not talk about that stuff. Right. Um, so a group just prayed for me and sent me on, we were staying at a host home that night, but before we left, there's a guy in the foyer selling records from a local Christian store, like christian albums right i haven't seen any christian music since my grandma bought me that tape four years ago or something and i stopped and i had about five or six bucks that my mom had given me and i'm flipping through the records and i see degarmo and key and i was like oh my gosh i know this band and the guy goes oh you do i said yeah i've got this tape you know and he said oh that's a good one he goes you'd like this album and he pulls out this double live album and it's got some of the songs from the tape i knew and he's like this is really good it's them playing in concert it really rocks you know it's and, and, uh, I said, well, this is how much money I got. And it was, it was less than what the guy was selling the record for, but he's like, I'll take it. And yeah. he took my money and he gave me the records. Now I have no more food money, but I have a record, which is now the story of the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. I will always trade food for records and I still do. Um, but I go to this host home with my youth group and they're putting kids on, you know, the floor to sleep everywhere in this house. Like, cause there's thousands or I don't remember thousands, maybe, maybe just hundreds, but whatever. And I said, can I sleep by your record player? <laughs> and so they let me sleep by the record player. And here's, so here's this like, you know, 12 year old kid with headphones sleeping by the record player, playing his new record, listening. Cause I couldn't talk to the counselors that night, but I could listen to that record. So DeGarmo and Key became my post-show counselors. And I listened to that album all night long, hardly slept at all, four sides, two records, back and forth, back and forth. Wow. And it spoke to me and it gave me a sense that I had a calling, that I was not forgotten, that God was like, look, I haven't forgotten about you. I do want to have a relationship with you. This is going to be a hard road. There are no easy answers. So don't think that just walking forward means the problems are solved. You are going to have a long, hard journey but if you can exhale and if you can trust, I have a path for you to, to walk. And, wow. and that's exactly what's happened. It's been a long, long really hard path. Yeah. And ironically, to skip ahead 30 some years later, I ended up in Nashville after a lot of other stuff happened. 
working at Capitol Records where my boss was Eddie DeGarmo. <laughs> and I had oh. that cassette that I had had him sign when I was a kid, which was another whole crazy story. So I got to that work with Eddie for 10 years so as my boss cool. at Capitol. That is amazing. How cool is that? <laughs> wow. So, okay. Wow. That is, that's, I mean, really unique. I mean, you know, I just love how people come. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. They come I to hope nobody else has to go through what I've gone through. Right. I mean, but people come to faith in so many different ways, you know, and it's amazing how God uh, calls each person individually. And it's a really unique to them story. Wow. That's that's amazing. I do have a question. When you earlier you had mentioned uh, your faith kind of shifting at age ten, mm-hmm. can you elaborate just yeah. a little bit on that? Sure. Well, my faith. I think as a younger kid, what I remember was it was a survival line. Like mm-hmm. I felt, I I felt, and I I really knew that God was real, and I saw the transformation in my mom's life, and I wanted access to that. My mom yeah. says that that when I was little, I don't remember this, but she tells a story so many times, I, I feel like I remember it. But she got baptized and came out of the water crying. And I, as the oldest boy, got very defensive and was like, I'm what somebody hurt mom? Because I was used yeah. to seeing her cry. Yeah. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. And that usually meant she had been hit or something or something had gone wrong. But she was like, right. No, 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 these are happy tears. I'm happy. I got Jesus in my heart. And she said that I I said, Well, then I want him in my heart. And yeah. so as this three, four year old kid, whatever it was, I said the prayer and you know, <laughs> and I think that in a way that meant something and that that there was a, a spirit that came into my personality, my heart, my and, and but I also was like a little duckling following the mama duck, like, you know, this is the step she takes, this is the step I take, right? Right. And right. she has to survive this nightmare world that we're in, but so do I. Like I gotta yeah. survive this too. And yeah. the other thing is that at one point in our life, she did decide we, I have to leave this guy. He's too dangerous. And she left and we came up to Chicago and my biological father was such a good con man that he became a pastor of a storefront church to convince her that he had changed, but he was so convincing. He convinced her, he convinced an entire little church that he, and he was a great speaker and she came back and then all the same stuff started happening again. It was all an act. And so even at five, six, seven years old, I started to see that there, there was a lot of lies going on. There was, and and so I, I realized at 10, I have to go from this being like a, a lifeline that's just keeping me alive to something that will sustain me. It's, it's like when you are running from a bear and, and you get that adrenaline burst and you're yes. like, okay, I'm away from the bear. I can't yeah. live on that kind of adrenaline based faith right. forever, or I will just have a heart attack and die. Yeah. There has yeah. to be a transition. And for me, that transition came into cultivating a level of discernment, which I now, I only much later realized was probably partially related to the fact that I was raised by a con man and I'm, I was so committed to not becoming a con man myself because every guy is either wants to be like his father or is terrified of being like his father or maybe a little bit of both. And, and so having a, having an alcoholic, abusive, sociopathic father, I was terrified of being like my father. Thanks for listening to 180. We're taking a brief pause in John's story to give you a sneak peek of our next 180 you won't want to miss. Burning for Jesus with Sir Mahmoud. His story is just incredible. He said, you going to church? I said, of course I'm going to church. 
This is my country. I give up blood for this country. This is an Islamic country. This is my city. We give a right to Christian to have a church in my city. I'm going to burn that church down. Wow. Never miss a 180 by joining our email list. The link is in the show notes. I've, I've realized in hindsight that the truth detector in me, you know, which I think has been fueled by art, I think art and music in, in particular can be a really great way for us to cultivate discernment if we engage it that way. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians don't. They just use it as a product that's like, oh, now I have a Christian version of that product. I don't have to engage in discernment anymore, kind of back to what we were talking mm. about earlier. Yeah. But if we use it right, it can actually enhance our discernment skills, and we can become better thinkers and discerners of the truth from the false, the love from the self, you know, mm-hmm. fear from the, you know. The, yeah. And as I grew, I, I felt that transition happening. So when I talk about a transition, I think I went into, and it's not like it was an easy one because I'm still dealing with the repercussions of that kind of trauma and stuff, but I do feel like now the theme of my life is, boy, today, am I going to be saved? (laughs) Like, am I going to walk in salvation and freedom and discernment and love and grace, or am I going to relapse into this idea that, well, I made a decision 30 years ago, so I don't really need to think about that anymore. Right, right. Wow. I like that concept of, yeah, every day deciding which one you're going to walk in because it really truly is a choice, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's powerful. And I think today we see the results of so many people that are not making that choice because I look around and I see the majority of people don't seem to be able to discern basic facts from conspiracies or, you know, we're afraid of so much stuff and people are operating most of their life from an attitude of, self-protection. And so I think that we've lost our ability to discern because we became so much about being just kind of Christian consumers as opposed to Christian discerners. And we think so much about that salvation moment as opposed to the experience of walking that out. And so that's kind of become the theme of my life. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. And, um, when I came back from that retreat, uh, I was so excited about this music, but Degarmon Key was still the only band I really knew about that kind of felt like they were from my world. Um, a few years after we settled in Chicago, my mom and my biological father were officially divorced. And after a little bit of a, a painful few years transitioning, she met and married a, a fantastic guy who uh, was first my stepdad. And then he adopted me when I was 18. I got to sign my own adoption papers, which was great. Oh, wow, wow. Um, and he had been in rock bands in the 60s. And we kind of bonded over music. He taught me how to play guitar. I'd, I'd been dabbling, but he actually taught me stuff. And, and we could connect on music. He, he would pull out records. He was a relatively new believer himself, having gone through sort of Eastern religions and philosophy and and new agey kind of stuff and very spiritually minded, but had come to Christianity uh, relatively recently, um, but very seriously. And he was a thinker. And I liked that. And so we would put on a Chicago album or a James Taylor album or Paul Simon. I remember listening to Paul Simon records with dad and we would recognize, you know, the kind of spiritual, like digging for human, the human heart in these things. And I loved that about, that was a way that my dad and I really connected. Well, after I came back from that retreat with that DeGarmo and Key record, I played it for dad and, um, and then we started listening to the Christian radio station a a bit and I was like struggling to, 
to latch into any of that music. But then one night, I remember our whole family lived in this two-bedroom apartment um, where it was very cramped. And we and he had a son from a previous marriage. And then my mom and dad had just had a baby. So there's six boys and my two parents living in this two-bedroom apartment in Glen Ellen and uh, just on top of each other. And I'm sitting in the corner with headphones on it, as always, plugged into the radio station, listening to that CCM music, trying to develop a taste for it. And then one night at nine o'clock exactly, they were playing a certain kind of very traditional song. And in the middle of the song, the DJ just picked the needle up off, kind of rudely picked the needle up off that song and started playing this new wave rock song. Didn't say anything. Then another one and then a hard rock song. And I was like, oh, and he said, things are changing. And then play these songs. And I thought, oh, it's not a Christian station anymore. This stuff is way too cool. Yeah. <laughs> By the third or fourth song, he comes back. And I'm thinking, man, whatever this is, this is really cool. It sounded like college rock. Like I'd never heard any of these songs before. And they were really smart. And they were kind of funny and, and really weird music. And I loved it. After the fourth song or something, he's like, can you believe this is all Christian music? You know, that was. And he lists all of the artists. And he goes, and coming up next... Chicago's own, you know, they, they run the biggest homeless shelter. They blah, blah, blah. This is Chicago's own resurrection band. And he starts playing this song, military man from res band. Mm. I lost my ever loving mind. I mean, I was, <laughs> it was as if you had dropped a toaster into my bathtub. I, I exploded and this song was so cool. And, and <laughs> I jumped up Crank the volume up, unplug the headphones so it comes blasting out of the speakers. Mom and dad and the boys probably were watching the A-team or something. They're all like, what the heck is going on? I'm jumping up and down. Like, like, it was almost like a signal had come from another planet and said, we found you, John. Like, we've been looking for you. You found your people. Like, And I couldn't believe it. I said, this, this is actually – I'm, I'm having a panic attack. Like, this is actually <laughs> – faith music like these people are christians and listen and dad says he remembered that moment he told me later he's like that's how, what it was like when i first heard the beatles like and everybody talks about like of, of the boomer generation who yeah. are musicians yeah they talk about seeing the beatles on ed sullivan and how many people were like that's the moment i became a guitar player that's the moment i started writing songs that's the moment i knew i was going to be a right. rock star or a musician right. or whatever yeah that night was when i said okay this is it. I'm, I'm going. And they talked about a festival. I went and saw the first Cornerstone Festival the following summer. Oh yeah, yeah. And when I went to that, I was 13, almost 14. I literally stood there in a field up there northwest of Chicago, and I watched this music, and I felt like God was like, "See, I told you I didn't forget you. Look, look around. There's what wow. six, seven thousand people there. This wow. is your tribe. Like this wow. is this is where you're gonna go." And, and I just was like, whatever circus this is, I am running away with it. Like, yeah. <laughs> this is it. It's going to take me a couple of years because I still got to go home yeah. and I got to finish school and stuff. But I sensed that there was, there was no reason that a band like the 77s, they were to me that day, the one that, that got through to me the most. Their music was, was complicated. And wow. I said, this this is this kind of music talks to everybody. This isn't just for Christian kids. This isn't just for church people. This is for everybody. And so at 14, I went home and I wrote up what you would might call like a manifesto. I'm, what do I have to do to have a conversation with kids like me that tell them they're not forgotten, that tell them that there's truth out there for all of us, that there's relationships out there, that we're welcome into this family. What do I got to do? 
And I'd started doing research. I started calling radio stations. I started calling magazines. I started figuring out, what do I have to do? And I found mentors. I found people like a guy named Dave Bunker who had been in the music industry. I, I found a job at a Christian bookstore in Wheaton where I was the music manager and I started to build my plan. I talked to radio station people. I got an internship at that very same radio station. And even at that internship, I, in one of my first weeks there, I met a guy named Rich Mullins, who was a brand new artist who just started and he was there promoting his first record. And, and he kind of took me under his wing and became a big brother to me in a, in a lot of ways. My dad even became a, a mentor to me on the musical side. So all this time, I'm, I've got a band and I'm playing songs and I'm writing songs. I'm also learning how to write about music. I'm learning. How, I'm going out and speaking at youth groups all over Chicago, talking about music. I started True Tunes, this record store, started a magazine, started a mail order thing, started a concert venue. And it was just because I felt like this, this tribe, most of how people were doing Christian music was creating Christian products to promote to Christians. And my thing was to say, no, 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 no. We just as Christians need to be involved in making great, great music that's open to everybody. And then part of that is also we just need to engage with great music as Christians because that pr provides a bridge of conversation with, with kids like me that we're, we're going to be more likely to engage that. Right. Mm -hmm. So that started the path. And then I've just found these people and God has opened doors and I've just been faithful. So people have mentored me in different ways at different times and, I did True Tunes for about 10 years, and then I went to work for the Cornerstone Festival for a good long time. And now I, I did a lot of consulting and writing and wrote books and produced some records and uh, worked on some movies and spent 10 years at Capitol and working with Eddie. And yeah, here I am <laughs> back are. doing yeah. True Tunes in a different way. And Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. But would you take us to the moment of when you were standing at that guitar case and you were kind of imagining yourself vomiting all of this garbage hmm. on my spiritual journey there are markers right i remember when my grandfather told me he could tell even before we went into hiding before that moment when i was probably seven i talked to him about how i felt like god had forgotten me this is we're in we're in hell right now or he loves me but this is his plan to torture me <laughs> and so we're, we're, or he's just forgotten us. Like he hasn't gotten to us on his list yet. And as a seven-year-old, I was just obsessing over this life is terrible. And I remember talking to my grandpa who was a relatively new believer himself, and he didn't have any answers to that. Mm. And he didn't pretend to, he just said, you know what? I think that you can, if you're ticked at God, if you think he's forgotten you go scream at him. He goes, you got a hundred acres of woods behind your little house. He's like, go out there and just have <laughs> it. He can take it. God can handle it. Wow. That was some wow. wisdom because I went yeah. out there as far as I could in that woods and I screamed my ever loving lungs out at God. I mm. screamed until my, I felt like my throat was going to bleed. Wow. I realized wow. something at seven years old. It was like, all I knew was all I felt anyway was God saying, I hear you. There's no answers, <laughs> nothing. I'm not going to make up something like, oh, here's your grand plan. Just, I hear you. 
Sorry. (laughs) That's it. That's it. So when I have that moment going down there and purging into into the guitar case, only later do I realize that maybe there was something about the guitar case that kind of started me on my own musical path. But for me, going back through my life and seeing Screaming in the Woods to then having that moment, that altar call moment, to then having that cornerstone moment, or having the moment in the living room with my parents and the, and the radio, and then the cornerstone festival. It's yeah, like I can see a pattern yeah. where I can go, oh my gosh, like now I can see, and that underscores even more how I've needed discernment because I can also see, boy, if I had done this instead of this, right. yeah, what would I have missed out on? Right. Now I'm not wealthy, but I've got a lot of joy. I've, I've sensed a lot of purpose. I feel wow. like I've got a calling and, a, and uh, I'm, I wouldn't trade any of it for the world. It does start with a, a catharsis, but it has to move to something beyond that catharsis. It has to evolve into discipleship, discernment, obedience. Um, the catharsis is great and it's, it can be like the spark of something, but, but if you don't put some fuel there for that spark to ignite, and if you don't give it enough air, then the catharsis is, you're just going to want to move from one catharsis to another. And that's not enough to sustain you. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I really appreciate what you say about discipleship. And that was actually one of my questions. I was kind of curious is moving forward after that, those many moments where you kind of felt like God was, you know, leading you, directing you, meeting you, reminding you that you weren't alone, um, was how, how did you grow in the faith? Um, I definitely think that music has been a constant and still is something that provokes thought and reflection for me. And it's part of the process. To me, growth comes through service. You know, like I, every place I've been involved, it's like, how can I serve? I'm teaching, I'm doing mentoring, I'm doing one-on-one counseling with people. I'm leading a house church. I'm leading small groups. I'm leading small theology, (laughs) pursuing classes. Uh, you know, it's that. And so, um, and in different seasons of my life, it's done different things. I mean, frankly, working at Capitol was one of those things. You know, like, yeah. And then when that season ended, all of a sudden I got tapped to be the associate dean of the School of Music at Trevecca. I wasn't, I wasn't even looking for that. And so I got to yeah. go work for six years wow. at an institution of higher learning, working with college students, doing both one-on-one things, working with small groups, speaking at chapels. Doing, it's just, it was just, and it still remains this thing where I go, man, you know, it reminds me of Peter Furler from the Newsboys. He said, he goes, everything that God invests in us, it's not for us. It's for us to invest back into the kingdom. Yeah. So whether that's material things or whether that's skills and experiences, you have a level of wisdom and experience and knowledge that you are required to now invest in the kingdom. It's not for you. And he goes, it's easy to think of that when it comes to material stuff, but it's harder when it comes to skills. He goes, who else knows what you know and how to do what you do? But it's just, I'm part of the body and my job is to serve the kingdom. Peter was right. And so the challenge was to think, okay, well then how can I be best used? And then that's still the challenge. I'm still figuring that out. Wow. Thank you so much, John. If I could just ask one more thing, you know, there's a lot of people out there, John, like you who really feel a connection spiritually to music that aren't your typical, you know, Christian songs. And they find almost the religion, mm-hmm. uh, if I could say, kind of like in in that realm of, you know, listening to all these different songs and kind of finding truth, you know, uh, to that. What would you say to somebody who 
maybe takes more of an approach of I don't need the church, I don't need to be synced up with other people because I kind of find everything I need through this music. What would you say to that? Yeah, that, well, first I would say, boy, I understand the, and I personally resonate with the frustration and even fear of connecting with the institutional, organized, professional church thing. So I would I would talk about that with that person and and make sure that they understand that I can really really empathize with that. Then I would then I would say, well, let's really lean hard into what what it is about that music that is pulling them into the spiritual places. Because I think that sometimes we scratch that itch just enough without actually satisfying what it's calling us to on a deeper level. Mm -hmm. So if what they, what their heart really wants is some, some answers, some resonance, community, belonging, and the music is kind of pulling them there, listening to that music and feeling that might be like scratching the itch, but not actually dealing with what is causing that itch. And that's the hunger we all have to to know and to be known, to love and to be loved. And so I would say lean hard enough into it and be be humble enough and honest enough to to go where it leads you. And that m- might be towards other people. And then to say, you know, tell me about this God you don't believe in because there's a good chance I don't believe in that God either. And there's probably yeah. people somewhere that you can find yourself in fellowship with. And you can intentionally find the Jesus of the gospel the same way that those hippies all did in the Jesus movement that, you know, that we talked about in the the Jesus music movie a little bit, you know, where they said, boy, this Jesus, I actually resonate with this. And it's not the same as creating Jesus in your own image. It's not like, oh, we're going to manufacture a Jesus that we like. It's just when you take away the stuff about Jesus that's not him, the political stuff or the corporate stuff or whatever, what you're left with, that true Jesus then you're going to go, oh, man, I'm actually drawn to this. And you'll find other people are too. Yeah. But then you're going to have to be in a room with other people. And we're called a body Uh, for a reason. You know, we're going to have to deal with each other. So That's right. That's right. Awesome. John, it's been so good talking to you. Sure thing. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Absolutely, guys. Yeah. Awesome, man. Hey, friends, check out the show notes on this one. There's samples of all the cool music John talked about and links to like everything he mentioned. So don't forget those. This is Kate with the send off. Today we're featuring poet Blind Tony. From a very early age, John felt like he was on a pair of skis, being pulled through shark infested waters with God ignoring all his pleas. And he felt like his only hope was to hold on tightly to the rope. And that rope for John was music, without a doubt. His father was very abusive, and for John, music turned out to be the only way out. He said he went through the religious motions, applying all the external notions, but it was all in vain, because all he felt was fear, anger, and pain until he attended an altar call one night. And everybody was told to put their problems in the guitar case. So John put in his fear, anger, and pain, and a catharsis took place. God showed up without a doubt, and John felt him inside and out. And ever since that blessed day, John's been living God's way, 
job, community, family, wife. God has been the center of John's entire life. And for John, music is still the key. And he ministers on his website, True Tunes, every month, faithfully. Once again, God opens seemingly locked doors. But this is John Thompson's story, and I'm wondering, what's yours? Feel free to contact us at 180podcast.com and tell us your story. We just might use it. And for more of my poetry... Check out Anthony Horton's Poems channel on YouTube. And until the next time, remember we love you, but God loves you even more. 180 is a production of One Way Ministries.